Sometimes it feels like the sun will never rise, like the birds will never sing again. That's right. When you don't know what to do, just keep on breathing. From the City of Angels in Los Angeles and the Big Apple in New York City, welcome to all my listeners out there in Radio Land. I'm Dave, the caregiver's caregiver at caregiverdave.com, along with my lovely co-host, Adrian Gruberg, coming to you live and on demand 24-7 on 25, count them, 25 global audio and video platforms like iHeartRadio, iTunes, YouTube, Facebook Live, SoundCloud, Blog Talk Radio, and about 20 more others all around the world. And we are so proud to be voted number one caregiver podcast of the top 50 on Player FM and one of the top six best podcasts by Caring.com, as well as number three podcast out of thousands of caregiver podcasts on Feedspot. And we do have an exciting show planned for you today, don't we, Adrian? Yes, we do. Yep, we do. I think so. <laughs> and I want to take this moment to thank last week's guest, Audrey Bond, uh, no relation to James Bond, uh, helping the sandwich generation navigate a global pandemic. And as uh, a reminder, that interview and all our interviews are on all our membership website and all those platforms I mentioned earlier. And all right, enough of that. Our guest today, <laughs> Dr. Jeff Spies. The author of Dying with Ease, A Compassionate Guide for Making Wiser End-of-Life Decisions. He has spent his medical career with people facing serious illness and death, first as an oncologist, then as a hospice physician, and he's lectured extensively and has been recognized as a leader in the field of end-of-life care. Welcome to the show, Dr. Jeff Spies. Thanks. Thanks so much, Dave and Adrian. It's great to be here. Oh, it's our pleasure. Can everybody hear me okay? I'm trying to uh, Certainly can. not blow into the microphone yep. here. Yeah, so, but you're blocking your face a lot. Well, yeah. let me just lower that a little bit. How's that? <laughs> Better? <laughs> I could just hear it go, you know, and that's never good. Yeah. So I always like to ask our guests, shall I call you doctor? Shall I call you Jeff? Shall I call you Jeffrey? What should I call you? Well, Jeff will be fine for this next hour. Yeah. Jeff will be fine. Okay. Drop the formalities. Well, Jeff, right. I like to ask. Otherwise, I have to call you caregiver, and that just doesn't work. Uh, <laughs> yeah, just don't call me late for dinner. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we, we would like to ask our guests, um, just who is Jeff Spies, Dr. Jeff Spies, and why was he put on this earth? Well, yeah, that's a good question, because the second part of that uh, question I'm still figuring out, but I think I'm getting closer. <laughs> um, and, well, you're you're and, young enough. you got plenty of time. <laughs> oh, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Um, so, so um, I'm, a, you know, a little Ohio farm boy who always wanted to be a doctor because that's what the people he admired in his family did. And um, and uh, so uh, I finished did you, did med you school. Did you used to check out the the animals also? Oh, pardon me for interrupting. Well, I loved it when the vet would come. <laughs> um, I loved assisting 
if you could call it that. It's mainly just stand, watch, and pull things when the vet <laughs> would actually operate in the barn. I look back and think, is that amazing? Um, and so that was that was great. That was great. Um, but but uh, uh, started in uh, in small college town, Ohio, Worcester, Ohio, uh, in the mid-80s in a multi-specialty group as an oncologist. Uh, I went into, at the time, hematology, uh, the study of blood, blood and cancer mm -hmm. were combined. I oh, went yeah. into the field for the laboratory hematology. I stayed because of cancer patients. Uh, the... the um, uh, that's mainly what you do, and in the mid-80s, most of the people I met in my office died. Uh, not mm. that day. Uh, you know, and not but, in your uh, office. And not in my <laughs> office, although we did have a couple, yes. Oh! Uh, and um, uh, it just seemed to be part of my job to continue caring for uh, these people throughout their lives. I began to volunteer with a local hospice agency um, and learned the, the kind of the nuts and bolts of hospice from the ground, but also mm. that gave me the opportunity of doing house calls. And in medicine in the 80s and 90s and, and until COVID, uh, house calls just didn't happen. And you learn so much about people. I coped with the fact, every oncologist has to cope with the fact that people die, that people sure. don't do well. They come into the office, and this was before we had good anti-nausea drugs, so people would come into the office feeling good and leave feeling horrible, uh, <laughs> which is great advertising. Um, and um, the we all have to find a way to cope, and the way I coped was to learn these people as people, to encounter these people as as individuals and to learn their families and to learn and to as much as they would let me in and as much as they would want me to expose. And through that, I uh, just gradually morphed into end of life care, uh, making a uh, wow. few stops along the way, uh, spent a time uh, about five years back in academics at the University of Iowa, where I became a diehard Hawkeye. Um, and, uh, and, uh, um, and from, from, since you're on the coast, yeah, Iowa, that's that one thing in the middle. It's right on the river. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's not potatoes, it's corn. Um, and the, um, but then for the last 10 years, 15 years, really, I've been totally a hospice doc. Totally involved mm -hmm. in the care of people in their dying phase. Yeah. Well, you're talking to no strangers of hospice. Both Adrian and I, uh, you know, very into that with our loved ones. Uh, I wanted to ask you, um, hospice has evolved over the years, hasn't it? Uh, let's talk about the changes that have gone through to hospice and bringing in things like uh, palliative care and so on. Um, that, uh, that would certainly uh, educate me on the subject. Well, sure. Um, uh, hospice, as we know it, uh, really dates from the uh, mid-60s uh, when uh, Dame Cecily Saunders in London uh, started St. Christopher's Hospice mm. and developed the concept of whole person care 
the concept of total pain, that it's not just a disease that uh, these people have. Their condition is that they are dying and that they are meeting the end mm. of, of their life and, and maybe suffering, maybe celebrating at multiple levels. That model was translated into the U.S. in the 70s uh, and in the uh, uh, mid-early 80s, the hospice was defined by the Medicare hospice benefit that was uh, passed by Congress, signed by President Reagan, uh, and that established what hospice needed to look like and how it was going to be paid for. That it was designed as a way, uh, as, a, as, a, as a method of care in which primary caregiving for the patient was provided by family members. And I know that's a lot of your 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 yeah. your listeners. Unpaid family members. <laughs> yeah, unpaid family members. Un, often untrained family members. Sometimes unwilling family members uh, that just Free got recruited. Amen, amen. Yes. Yeah. There was nothing else. Yet's what you did, and still that's what you do. Um, the and but the idea of hospice care was the hospice agencies got contracted. At, to, they would receive a certain amount of money for each day they took care of the patient, and out of that they paid all their staff and their meds and their oxygen and their durable medical equipment and everything yeah. like that. And it's and it's it's a tremendous benefit, and especially before there was a Medicare Part D, getting prescriptions covered was gigantic. This was a huge advantage. The idea, the model was set up assuming a cancer model in the 1980s. When the uh, because the criteria uh, for the Medicare hospice benefit are only two. One is you have to select it, and the other is that you have to have a prognosis, an expected survival prognosis of six months or less. Uh. In the 80s, in people with cancer, that was pretty easy. But in the 80s, there were also some other things that were happening. In New York like, and San Francisco, people started AIDS. dying. Uh, young men started dying of funny infections that nobody could figure <laughs> out. Gay, and, gay cancer. And, and yes, yes, and cancer. And this, and while you know that did that, just added lots of challenge to hospice agencies because early on, this was a disease nobody knew anything about, and nobody knew what what the risks were, and and uh, this kind of stuff. But then what has developed is that this hospice benefit that, that was designed for patients with cancer or, or AIDS in the, in the late stages before there was effective treatment right. that could, would die at a fairly predictable rate in a fairly predictable time. Well, that's not what most people in America die of. People in America die of heart disease, and they die of dementia, and they die of, of uh, chronic lung disease. And so now we have a situation in which the patient population is tremendously different. Caring for some of these patients is much harder than caring for a cancer patient. I mean, those of your caregivers who care for um, 
uh, parents with uh, advanced Alzheimer's disease are are the saints in my book. Mm. Um, where was I going with that? But <laughs> even though somebody may be at the end of their life, the end of their life might happen tomorrow or it might happen two years from now. And so that's changed the regulations tremendously and the way yeah. um, uh, hospice agencies look at uh, taking care of their patients. Mm -hmm. Yeah, obviously hospice has to do with death, uh, in case nobody knew. Um, and a lot well, of Americans actually, I'm going to argue that point, Dave, um, <laughs> really? because I am going to argue that point because <laughs> it, hospice has to do with being terminally ill and being dying, but it is all about life. It is all about mm -hmm. living that part of your life. That's true. Uh, the death part, that's the, that's the funeral director's job and the chaplain's <laughs> job and the, fam and the bereavement uh, counsel uh, counselor's job. Hospice is all about living until you die. And that's the whole point. I like that. So um, why are so many Americans uncomfortable about thinking anything about death? I mean, they, they won't get life insurance which is actually death insurance, and they won't go and, and make final preparations, you know, like pre-purchase the, the casket and things so that their loved ones don't have to be bothered with it. Uh, many don't even uh, have a will because they just right. don't want to jinx their life. What do you think's going on, really, what, Adrian? Well, I said superstition. My grandfather yeah. wouldn't that write a will. It, yeah. yeah. It jinxed right. it, right. yeah. Yes, yes. I, I don't know the answer. If I knew the answer, um, I would write the definitive book. Uh, the <laughs> fact that there is that it's a problem uh, means that uh, we still have pe uh, the, the, the possibility for people to buy lots of books about it. But um, I'm not sure. I think Americans are fascinated by death. Uh, an interviewer a, a, a couple of weeks ago mentioned how in our movies and TV shows, death is a, is a common and frequent theme. Sure. The Disney princesses. Especially if you own a pet. Are, oh, if you own a pet, it's gigantic. It's gigantic. Even Disney movies, the, the heroes and heroines commonly are orphans or, or, have exper or are somehow bereaved. So we're fascinated by this. So I'm not sure if we deny it or if we're afraid of it. Um, I do think Americans have a, a problem with, with dying because it's not controllable. It's not as controllable as we would like. Mm. The American self-psyche of the exceptional pioneer hero, uh, the self-made person, that we are in control of our destiny and in control of our lives and we can do anything that we want because we're Americans, damn it, and we, <laughs> we can. But death doesn't pay attention to that. And uh, I think it's frightening to our self-image. Uh, I think that's, that's a piece. It's interesting that as people who are healthy have this kind of vague fear of dying, but people who are close to dying, they can identify things. And what they're afraid of is, was I good enough? Did I live a good enough life? Will I be alone? Will I have too much pain? Will I stink? Will people come to visit me? How will people remember me? Occasion sometimes there's the fear of what's on the other side I don't know, and of I course. fear that. 
Um, but I think a lot of the fears are the unknown, that we this is unfamiliar, unknown, and unknowable. Uh, uh, so, and that doesn't fit with our self-image. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, anytime we suffer loss, as you know, we go through a grief process, the, the denial, the uh, bargaining, the anger, the depression, and finally the acceptance. How does refusing to cope with the yeah. subject of death affect one's grief? Yeah, I think that's, that's, a, that's a superb question. Um, the, I don't know if I know the answer, but I, I think <laughs> that's a great question. That refusing to think about it, because I, I think it happens anyway. I think there are steps that you got to get through to maybe not. Some people die without getting through the steps. But the not thinking about it ahead means you got to do all that work in the last couple of days. And that's a lot of things to do. If you've got fractured relationships, um, uh, estranged kids, yeah. and you don't think about the fact that's, that, oh, gee, I'm going to die in a, two weeks, and I don't even know my son's address. How can I say goodbye to him? Um, mm. the, I think the, um, it's, it's the... Lots of hospice professionals say this, so it's not original with me, but we all learned it from our patients. And that is learning how to die really teaches you how to live. And because it reorients your priorities, you figure out, oh, this is what's important to me. This is who I am. Yes. And uh, so that you do the work. And I think you have to do, the, a lot of that work is going to get done. But when you're healthy, you have energy to do it. The one of my favorite one of my favorite um, uh, lists was uh, published by Ira Bayak, uh, who at the time was in Montana, but he's been at Dartmouth, and now he's he's one of the grand old men. Uh, he's older than me, so I can say <laughs> that he's old um, of of hospice and palliative care. Who in the '90s published a book called Dying Well. It was one of the first of the of the genre, mm, yeah. and uh, in that. Early on, he lists the jobs that you have to do if you're dying. <laughs> and his list was five things that the dying person should say. And they are, I love you. I forgive you. Mm. Please forgive me. Thank you. And goodbye. And if you think about... If I were no, I were dying. If I knew I were dying in a month, who would be the people that I would want to say those things to? Who have I not told enough that I I love them? Who have I not asked for forgiveness or forgiven? Mm -hmm. Who have I not thanked? Who do I need to say goodbye to? Well, and then, but to, but I think it's the brilliance of that is if you take it the step farther and say. Well, why wait till I'm dying? Exactly. Why not do that now? <laughs> and then I have all this time to celebrate. The problem is it's risky. When you're dying, you've got nothing to lose. You, you, the, the, you know, you're going to be gone soon. They can say whatever they want. I got nothing to lose now. Uh, so I can risk. 
we're afraid of that. We're afraid of living with the repercussions. If you're dying, you don't have to live with the repercussions. Why do you have a repercussion if you tell someone, I forgive you, please? And because you know. they might spit in your face. And, and <laughs> it might be somebody that you kind of have liked that grudge. That's, that grudge has, has defined your relationship for a yeah, long time. Some... I'm lousy at this. I'm a good grudge carrier. But, but I can <laughs> imagine when, I, when um, I finally had to, once I finally figured out how to forgive my father, I'm not going to go down that big road, but when I finally figured that out, it changed the way I thought about him and the way he thought about me. Well, actually, the way I thought about him, but it changed how I felt when I went to when I went to see him. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't all, you know, unicorns and rainbows. It was no. there's still that stuff. Um, I've forgiven it. I've decided that that happened in the past, but I still feel it. It's that's hard to get rid of those ingrained things. Yeah. I mean, I look at it. Um, I I forgave my mother, but you can't forget. It's there. It is embedded. It, it is there. But you can it forgive, is. and can. it makes things a lot maybe a lot lighter. Yeah. Maybe that's why that's they good. say you should forgive and forget. Listen, yeah, we're going to take can't a break. Forget. <laughs> well, you can try. <laughs> it is very hard. Forgiving sometimes is easy, but the forgetting part—that's is that's very hard. So listen, we'll be right back. Don't go away. Our featured speaker is a best-selling author who has written numerous books and articles. He's a speaker, life coach, and host of Dave, the Caregiver's Caregiver radio program. He frequently appears on television and radio shows all across the country and has even shared the stage with Suzanne Summers at Harvard. But his most important role is caregiver to his beautiful wife, Charlene, for over 22 years. Please welcome Mr. Dave Nassani! I want to share with you a love story. In a couple of weeks, my wife and I will be celebrating 44 years of being together. My wife, Charlene, and I had a fairy tale, storybook, romance, courtship, and marriage for the first 21 years of our lives together. One day out of nowhere, my wife has a headache, the headache of her life. She suffered a massive stroke, and it left her severely speech impaired and paralyzed on the right side. And in that moment, our world turned upside down. I gotta tell you, the next two years was like a living hell. I just didn't know what to do. I felt guilty most of the time. I became a caregiver. I didn't even know what a caregiver was. I was experiencing the same problems that other caregivers experience. If you don't take care of you, I can't take care of her. Well, that's why I wrote the book. Now I can teach other caregivers. I'm living proof that you can thrive as a caregiver. My wife and I travel now all over the world sharing our story. One day, life is gonna call upon you to be the captain of your boat. Heck, you might be saving your own life. Thank you. Yeah. And we're back with Dr. Jeff Spies and Adrian Gruberg. And I'm Dave Nassani, you're on The Caregiver Dave Show. And uh, I was going to ask, you know, that you're really telling a lesson of how the people who are still alive, you know, I counsel many people that uh, someone came into my gas station a while back and they were telling me, uh, he, he was just pouring his heart out to me for some reason. I think he was a vendor. And he was telling me, you know, my son and I haven't spoken in years. And I says, why not? He says, I don't know. We used to 
fish and do sorts all sorts of things when he was younger. And uh, I said something that upset him, and we haven't spoken since. I says, well, here's what you do. Go and, and just show up at his door with, with a box of his favorite whatever and just mm -hmm. uh, tell him, hey, you know, uh, I'm still alive. I, I would hate for me to die and you to live with years of guilt that the last things we said to each other was bad. And he looked at me, and he changed the subject. And I, I just knew <laughs> he wasn't going to do it because <laughs> it, it was too painful. Yeah. But you know what? Um, this is the advice I give to people who are living. Hey, if you were on your deathbed or if you just found out the doctor told you you have three weeks to live, what would you do differently? What relationships would you mend? You know, so many people have died realizing that the last thing they said to their loved one were hurtful, vengeful, uh, spiteful things, and that guilt doesn't go away very easy. Is that right? That's gigantic. It can be gigantic. <laughs> so the advice is, yes, do what you're saying and work on these relationships, not after you get your death sentence, but now, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. and let people realize, because there's so much to be upset with each other in this world. I mean, there's politics, there's... Uh, well, that's enough. Yeah. <laughs> people are unfriending people on Facebook and in real oh, life yeah. because yeah. of who uh, they either like or hate uh, in the White House. And uh, wait, yeah. really? Come on. I mean, Adrian and I don't agree on everything, but we're very good friends. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I value her friendship more than each other's her politics. <laughs> don't get me started. <laughs> So, um, no, I, you... I mean, I, I always look at it like um, tomorrow's not guaranteed. Right. Um, it, it's not as though I have to have a, a terminal illness uh, for me to die tomorrow or in a week. And I want hey, to get hit by a truck. The relationships. Mm -hmm. I just want the relationships to be resolved and. Um, to not carry all that angst and guilt and whatever it is around. So I try and clear the air as soon as I can. Good for you. Good for you. So why do you think there's such a reluctance from those in the medical field to have truthful discussions with their patients regarding death? Because, I mean, I hate to say this, but you're kind of like the death doctor, no? I, oh, you, I am the death doctor. This. You are uh, yeah, the death yes, doctor. No, You're the angel no, of death. No, I'm, yeah, no, well, I've heard, I've, I've heard it a few times. Yes. Okay. So, so and and we kind of got called that, if you remember. And uh, let's see, what are we talking now? Fifteen years ago, the death panels with uh, that yeah. were um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, supposedly Obamacare. was going to be the half with uh, Obamacare. Yes, it wasn't that long ago. Um, they were kind uh, of and, death panels, weren't they? Decide, you know, you're having the, politicians but, decide what uh, procedure is right for you instead of your doctor. I mean, God, well, that insane. if that were the case, but what got canned? Well, the only thing that that the the Affordable Care Act initially was asking for was to uh, that now is covered, and actually I think it got covered fairly recently. Was the ability for so the issue was. You asked about docs having the conversation. So one reason the docs said they didn't have the conversation is because it takes time and you don't get paid for it. 
when you're oh when God. you're uh, <laughs> well i mean when you're when and it's and it's probably gotten worse because if you've got They're a city, getting paid for if, it in other ways trust me if you're if if you have to see if you're employed by an a, a hospital now which most far and away more doctors are and you have productivity targets that you have to meet right. and that means you have to do a uh, patient in 12 minutes and that includes the charting Right, then and the turnover having, has to be fast. That has to happen. Uh, then it is hard to do this. Now, this is not the answer to your question. I don't think this is the answer yeah. to your question, but this was an answer that was given. So one answer that Medicare came up with, and this was what was proposed and got shot down as the death panels, was why don't we make having a conversation about advanced directives, about dying, yeah. a procedure that gets paid for? And that's now the case, that you can bill for that like you can bill for doing an EKG or you can bill for doing a, a lab test. And so that if the fact that it takes time. Now, is that the reason docs don't have the conversations? That probably has very little to do with the reason the docs don't have the conversation. The, doc, the reason docs don't have the conversations, I think, are two. One is they don't know how. Uh, and that, I think, will change. When I was at Iowa, I mentioned that a, uh, a little bit ago, one of my jobs was in uh, teaching residents how to do that, how to, how to, quote, deliver bad news, how to have the conversation. And there's a sequence of steps. And it's not hard, it's, but, you gotta, but you have to do it right. Um, mm -hmm. The hard part is the emotion. The hard part is to know that you're going to go in and uh, encounter something that may be difficult, and you don't—you never know what the patient and family are going to do. They right. may scream, they may cry, they may go quiet, or the worst—the thing I hated most—oh, doctor, it must be so hard for you to have to tell us things like this. Um, <laughs> the, uh, but you never know. It's—it's—it's—it's it's, it's, it's a. So I—I I do think that that piece will change. But what I absolutely believe is the essence of why these conversations don't happen well is that docs are not any different than anybody else. None of us believe we're dying, and therefore it's frightening to go down that road. If I'm talking to somebody about their dying, a little bit in the back of my mind is saying, yeah, yeah, you just really don't want to go there. I notice that all all the time when people talk about the dying, their 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 tone of voice changes, and they mentioned, oh, you know, if somebody's coming to when they might uh, pass away, uh, and then then they stumble because <laughs> it's hard. We none of us think about it. Um, my, the example that I use, and I don't want to besmirch somebody that I think has done remarkable things. I think he, I think his book was brilliant. Atul Gawande's book, uh, Being Mortal, several years ago, in which he described being the, the surgeon sitting and counseling the patient and realizing this person is going to die, and I can't change it, and it has to be okay that that's going to happen. This isn't failure for me. This is just reality. 
Now, I don't know anything about his self self image, and I, I think he's a brilliant man, so he probably does it all right. But at least in his book, he didn't go the next step and realize not only is this patient going to die, but also me, the one in the white coat here, is going to die, and I can't do anything about it, and it's got to be okay. I, I'm convinced that a mortality awareness would make these conversations happen so much better, so much better. Because we're, we're partners in this. We're all in this together. We're all, we're all, all in this boat headed for wherever it's headed. Wherever. <laughs> wherever it's headed. Now, I'm sure you've had feelings about death beforehand. You, you gave a brief history of, of what led you to get into this. How have your feelings for death changed by doing what you're doing? Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. Uh, so um, let, me, let me do two parts of that. One is brain, uh, brain stuff, intellectual stuff. Because when I started down this road, I knew all the answers. Um, <laughs> now I know none of the answers, and it's much more fun. Um, I like being the, 16 years old. You know all the answers, and then you you know all the answers, right? You grow right, up, and, and you realize you really realize. Didn't. Yes, I didn't know what happened to that world. <laughs> um, uh, the the um, um, so one one of the one of the 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 examples that got blown out of the water for me is I I grew up in a fairly um, evangelical Christian uh, church uh, oh. community. And coming out of that, with everything that I was taught, I expected that when I would talk to people about dying, as people were dying, that the religious folks would be the best at it because they knew the answers, especially those who... Uh, and the data shows that it's exactly opposite, right. that the more religious you are, the more suffering you go through, uh, the less often you, uh, you make uh, choices to limit care. I'm not saying it's right or wrong, I'm just saying it is. And there are lots of those kinds of things that I thought I would know about the way people end the ends of their lives that turned out not yeah. to be the case at all. And uh, yeah, I, I love that. I've always said when people, you know, talk about they have cancer and they have to decide whether to go through chemo or just not, right. and I always blanketly say, hey, if I ever get cancer, I am never going through that. I'm going to die. I know where I'm going. But, you know, uh, it's, it's more difficult than that, isn't it? There are other issues, like my wife needs me, and who's going to care for right. her if I'm gone? Uh, so, yeah, I'd love to be selfish and just say, hey, I'm ready. Just pull the plug on me. But... Now I'm starting to think that maybe that's not the smartest thing to say because we just don't know what we have to do until we have to do it. Isn't that right, Adrian? <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. Um, I, I wanted to comment for a second. My mother-in-law was 91 when she opted to go through her third round of chemo. Wow. After having yeah. one good round, one difficult round, she had said, I'm never going through this again. She went through it again. She just loved life, I guess. She, huh? Yeah. 
it, it, it's, it's a tough one. Her. Yeah, it's yeah. amazing. It's a, how'd that one work out? One of the things that, yeah, the, <laughs> how did, yeah, how did it go for her? How did it go for her? Well, you know? it was, it was, the third round was too much for her body. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, she I was a tiny it's, little thing and. Right, right. Bless her she heart. Was, and, yeah. Yeah, and and it's not right or wrong. It's it's not right no. or wrong. The one of the things I had, and I used to talk about this when I did, I was doing palliative care in, in the hospital, is one of the jobs I saw us as having is what I, what I called is to give um, give some context to the or. Now, what I mean by that is, well, do you want to do this chemotherapy or well, what does that or look like? Right. If there's no structure to that or, then how would you ever pick it? Do you want to go on the ventilator or die, I guess? Well, what does that look like? And and so to have some structure and context <clears throat> and be able to describe another option, I think allows people to just make wiser choices. I mean, and, uh, and even if they don't choose that then, they at least understand and know, well, maybe next time I'm thinking about this, fourth, if the third round helps, the fourth round, am I going to try it? Yeah. Well, maybe I don't. It's time because well, I've already do, would, got an idea. How do advanced directives fit into, into this as far as making changes in the mindset? I think advanced directives. Can you change and can you change your mind if you're yeah. still lucid uh, against what your advanced directive says? Which one takes precedence? Well, well, if you're still uh, of you, you take precedence over everything, uh, no matter what's written down. Uh, if you uh, are of decision-making ability, you you take precedence. What and you who say decides goes. if I'm of decision-making ability? My family. It's, the doctor. it's assumed that you are, unless it's uh, so. That's a tough one because <laughs> it's not. So this is the old. Um, Okay, competent versus, I'm, I'm going to blank on the word, because competence, that's a legal definition. Right. And in order to be incompetent, you have to be declared so by a judge. Right. Uh, but but that's that's not the that's not the common thing. Um, the that, sound mind by a judge, is the is the language in a will. Being of okay, sound okay. mind. Okay. Sound mind. That works. That Whatever works. That, that means. works good. <laughs> Whatever that means. That works. But the, the concept in, in medicine is decision making capacity. If you have capacity, that's the word, not competence, but capacity. And that's variable because in one sense, it depends on the question. Do I have the capacity to decide if I want chicken or ham for supper? That's that's a capacity decision. <laughs> yeah. Uh, do I decide? Whether you're capable if, of making the decision. Capable of making a yeah. decision. And the thing is, can somebody understand what the choice is and the consequences of those choices? And sometimes yeah. that's pretty simple. Um, I, uh, you know, I if it's that like scene, I, if I, I, I'm sorry for interrupting, but I, I remember no. that scene in in Rain Man, where yes. remember uh, Raymond was in the court. And, and uh, you know, his brother was saying, no, he wants to stay with me. And so they would ask him, Raymond, do you want to stay with your brother? And he goes, yeah. Uh, do you want to stay at the hospital? And he goes, yeah. So <laughs> they, they demonstrated that he was not capable of making that yeah. decision. Right, 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 right. 
But anyway, with regard to advanced directives, I think they're absolutely essential, but they're not sufficient. Um, the the uh, an advanced directive says what I believe now, what I think now. But let's right. just clarify them a little bit. So your living will, which is the advanced directive that it kicks in first if you are unable to speak for yourself. Uh, the living will that says that if I am in either t uh, terminally ill or in a, in a uh, persistent vegetative state, persistently unconscious state, and unable to speak for myself, then this is what I want done. And usually living will is what, a list of what I don't want done uh, for most people. I don't want to go on a ventilator. I don't want to have a feeding tube. Um, I don't want to go on dialysis, and I do want comfort care. That's kind of the prototype. Although you could put anything in your living will that you like um, uh, to say that I do want this or I do want that. You can put anything in it that you like. But the kicker is the living will only kicks in in those situations. You mm -hmm. have to be either terminally ill or terminally ill and unable to speak for yourself or in a persistent uh, unconscious state. But, think, but yeah. most of the time, that's not the case. The person right. with advanced Alzheimer's in the in the assisted living memory care facility is none of those things. Right. Um, so so the living will will never kick in for that person likely. So then you and have drugs your, too matter. Yes. Drugs, yes. drugs make a drugs make a, a huge huge difference. Um, the durable power of attorney for health care is a more flexible option in which you name someone to speak for you uh, in the event you are unable to speak for yourself in health-related mm -hmm. matters. And the D DPOA limitations vary a little from state to state, but in general, it's pretty much that the, D uh, uh, the DPOA for health care can speak for you uh, to so, accept or decline surgery, so treatment. Here, here, here's a question. I, I Sorry, I keep interrupting, but if I don't say it, I'm going to lose it. Um, <laughs> what if uh, the advanced directive says, I do not want you know, to be resuscitated with the yeah. electric paddles, yeah. and uh, the doctors tell the loved one who has the authority to make decisions that we need to resuscitate her, she'll be fine after we do, I know the advanced directive says this, but what's the decision? Can that person override what the advanced directive says? Mm -hmm. So the legal answer is no. The practical answer is it happens. Um, and usually without, without consequences to anybody? Usually without consequence, yeah. Uh, yeah. Because in order to, in order to mm -hmm. enforce that, you've got to sue them. Um, <laughs> and uh, so if you survive and then sue for wrongful life, it's it's it's... <laughs> It's That's a tough. tough right? It has happened, but it's a tough. It's a tough case to prove. It's Did they win? To, um, I don't remember. I don't remember. <laughs> uh, but but the the key with the durable power of attorney, though, is if you're going to name somebody, number one, let them know, and number yeah. two, talk with them. Let them know what you think. You the job of a surrogate, the the legal responsibility of the surrogate is to act in your behalf in the make the decisions you would right. make. It's not to make the decisions they want. Now, if you're not able to speak, you know, you got to take people at face value. Yeah. Um, so is it perfect? It's, it's way not perfect. Uh, but it's, it's something. So that's why I say that, that um, uh, advanced directives are, are 
necessary but not sufficient. Uh, you yeah. you got to have them. Uh, but the more you can do to enhance that, because those the best decisions get made in conversation. And yeah. and rather than it's not always the emergency room, do I zap them or do I not zap them? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Let's talk about COVID-19. <laughs> Uh, it's made people more aware of their own mortality. And how can people plan for the last parts of their lives? Wow. It, that, so, yes, it has made uh, people more aware of their own mortality. Uh, the, the huge wrinkle is that whatever a good dying looks like, it usually involves other people. It's a good dying is rarely alone. Um, yes, I understand the the stories about the Eskimo going out on the on the ice floe to die, and and I or the you know the Viking the rowboat going out. I, I get that, and it's a fine culture. But they never asked those people what they thought about it after they went through it <laughs> to find out. Hey, was that how was that for you out there on the ice floe when the shark <laughs> finally got you? Um, uh, so, so, but most people want to die with loved ones around. And that's the huge thing with COVID. Uh, because if you're dying of COVID in the hospital, you're pretty much alone. Uh, things are, are at least a little more understandably regulated, but you're not going to have your family around. The agency no, that I uh, have been uh, involved with in hospice has really struggled with this because if somebody has, has COVID and is dying, you can't be having the family spreading the germ, the virus all over the unit. You can't be, that just can't happen. So I think it's worth thinking about ahead of time. In a, so my wife and I have talked about this and we've decided we decided fairly early on, because if you look at the data, if you end up in the ICU on a ventilator with COVID, chances are you're not mm. coming home. Right. Uh, and, and so how do you avoid that happening? Well, if you can help it, you don't go to the hospital in the first place. That's the way to, if you can at all do that. So Pat and I decided that if one of us gets seriously ill with COVID, and again, this is one of those, I don't know, you never know what you're gonna do until, you, until you're faced with until it. Until it happens, but, yeah. Until it happens. But that I think this is, I know this will be my choice, that I'm gonna stay home and, we, and get whatever care I can get. If I'm seriously ill, then that's gonna be involved hospice care. And that we have committed to be the caregiver for the other person. Now that's gigantic if you're a caregiver, and I know this is your 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 these are your peeps, Dave. Um, the <laughs> caregivers um, to care to be the caregiver for a person with COVID is taking your own life in your hands, is putting yourself at risk, and that adds a huge wrinkle. Um, uh, and so if you're if I'm dying of COVID, do I really want to ask my daughter, who's got three kids in elementary school, right. to be to take care of me when she, the risks are low that she will die, but it could happen. 
Yeah, um, so in this case, going to the hospital is like that Eskimo going out. They, they kind of know. Yeah, it's yeah, very much like the Eskimo going out that way. Um, and then if you get better in the hospital, where do you go? Because if you're going to come home, then you need to solve that question about who's going to take care of you at home. But if you're going to go to a facility, then you've got the same problems because the nursing homes don't want you because you are now the index case for their new super spreading. Uh, but I thought that when you're when you're over the COVID, um, when you are healed, uh, you have the yes. antibodies There's and you can't get it anymore. No such thing as healed. We don't know yet. We, well, we don't know that answer yet, although I think that's uh. true. But when is that? And when does your Medicare DRG run out? Because your Medicare... Well, is it is it when you test negative three times in a row? Is that when it happens? Well, I think that... Well, that's not when, you're, when your Medicare is going to stop paying for your hospital bill. Your Medicare mm -hmm. is going to stop paying for your hospital bill when you don't need acute inpatient care anymore. And that has to do with how well you're breathing and how you're functioning and this kind of stuff. That has nothing to do with whether you've cleared, uh, cleared the virus. If you go in with yeah. regular pneumococcal pneumonia, you're discharged way before you've cleared the infection uh, because that's the way we, we do medicine. I don't, so, so these questions are not, are not answered. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. But to answer your question about um, going, uh, having loved ones come and visit you in the hospital, uh, it seems to me that they can come up with a COVID test that you can have immediate results. No, that would well, answer there, that there problem. Are, there, but there I are. just heard, I just heard about the debates tonight that they're going to screen everybody and give them a COVID test. I'm thinking, fifteen well, minutes. In fifteen minutes, minutes, is that what it is? Yeah. So at least, and I know they, I heard they're very expensive, but apparently they're giving them to everybody who goes. The, the goes rapid to the tests debate. are Somebody not. They can do it to the hospital. No. So, so sure. So, so, so the rapid the, the rapid tests are quick and helpful if positive, not as helpful if negative, uh, because they're not as sensitive. Uh, right. Sensitivity pick is is how many cases that really are there do you pick up? Um, so are you the, saying that that if half of the people are tested tonight have a negative, that that's no guarantee that they don't have it? No. There's exactly. never a guarantee. There's no. There's no guarantee. So they're still taking there. a risk uh, doing this. They're, oh they're, yes. We are. We are all taking a risk. Whatever we do every day in this in this pandemic. Well, hopefully there they'll still no be wearing masks safe. when they're in there. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. There is no 100% safe. Um, mm. But but so yes, and and hospitals are figuring this out. But the technology is way behind the need. And how many people do you let in the room? Uh, you yeah. know, in, in the hospice agency, you know, we uh, the the way we always handled things was you know, have as many visitors as you wanted, whenever you right. wanted them, as long as we had enough chairs for you and you didn't spread out in the hall sure. and make too much noise. You can bring the dog <laughs> as long as they don't pee in the in the hallway. You can bring yeah. the cat as long as they don't get out of the room. It's it's all okay. That world is different now. The question is, can I do a window visit? Can I let somebody yeah. come in and look in the window and crack it open and and talk with with mom for a few minutes? So we're all everybody's doing Skype visits and Zoom visits and right. uh, and and things yeah. like that. Yeah. So it's uh, so uh, yeah. This hour has gone so fast. We've got about five minutes left. So take that five minutes and uh, talk about what maybe we haven't covered yet, but definitely talk about your book and uh, whatever you want to talk. I wonder about. now with what ease means. So, so, uh, um, 
So the, the, the title has got, went through a few permutations and Dying With Ease was, was uh, thought up by my um, uh, publicist and like the it. publisher liked it. Um, my title when I started it was Relax, It's Only Life and Death. Uh, but that, uh, <laughs> that wasn't thought to have to be likely to sell. I think the point of with ease is doing as much work ahead of time as as you can, so that you don't have to be struggling and doing all the work uh, when at the at the last moment. So that's the with with ease. So the but the point of my book was to take the what I observed in all these years of, of working with dying people, especially what I observed that didn't work, the, the, the conversations that didn't go well, the, the, um, uh, the angers, um, and then, and then what, what kind of helped that through, um, and write about that from a positive perspective as to how to, how to avoid that. Part of that I am convinced, and I know I've, I sound like a, a one-trick pony here, but but <laughs> part of that is being aware of one's own mortality, and not just the advanced directive and and paying for the casket right. and that kind of stuff. Because being aware of one's own mortality is not an intellectual thing; it's an emotional and a, and if and if you'll allow a spiritual thing. I was shaken up, maybe that's too strong of a word. It was pretty good. Uh, <laughs> when back in the 90s, sometime I was at a conference, I remember the conference room in Fort Lauderdale, you could look out and see all the gigantic yachts in the in the marina there. Um, <laughs> but uh, when a spiritual care provider that has since become a very good friend, took us through an exercise of progressive loss. And you mentioned this, Dave, that, that that we have these little deaths all the time when with all these little lo these losses that we have because one thing that happens with a dying person is they lose everything uh and so this exercise was designed to take a person through the experience of go going from health to dying but losing everything incrementally along the way and it was powerful. It it was a powerful thing. And I included this. I had to work hard to try to try and adapt this verbal group exercise into a book chapter. And I'll be interested how people think it works. Um, if they end up crying, then it works because <laughs> that because that's the awareness you need of your mortality is to encounter the sadness, the grief the fear, because if you do some of this work, experience some of this anger and grief and fear ahead of time, then you're not so shocked right. when, mm -hmm. it, when it happens. It's, you've mm -hmm. already done some of that work. You have a little bit you yeah. can, you can call, fall back on. So that's being, really- Being aware thing. of our own mortality, and it happens a lot uh, when someone has their first heart attack. Yes. Uh, and the doctor tells you, you know, you better change your ways or you're, you're gonna be back here. And amazingly enough, 50% will do that and do that. never have another one. But the other 50% won't do a thing, and they'll have yeah. their second heart attack. But the ones that do change, they they're different. You know, they they're they different. have a different mentality. They yeah. um, they prioritize things differently. They're just very very different. 
That's absolutely right. The, the example that illustrated that to me, I, I mentioned forgiving my father. Um, my dad had a, uh, his heart attack and arrest eight years before he died. Um, the, um, I remember the conversation in, in the ICU when one of my sisters says, oh, I can't wait till dad wakes up so he can tell us what he saw. Uh, his his near-death experience. I had looked at him from my little doctor standpoint and thought, he ain't coming back because (laughs) he looked pretty sick. But he did. He didn't remember a thing. But he was different. He was a different person after he woke up. And I don't know the why. He thought differently. Um, I think for him it was a spiritual experience. He thought, I'm here for a reason, and I'm going to figure out what that reason is. Um, or I'm just going to be that reason. I'm going to be the person that I always knew I should sh- should be, but never thought I could be. Um, does, it have, and, does it have something to do with gratitude? I think it. I think it does. I think it does. The whole attitude of gratitude, living mm-hmm. with, uh, is 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 a wonderful way of looking at life. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Well. How can someone get a hold of you or have okay. more questions so, or buy the book or whatever? Sure, sure. Buying the book anywhere. So um, uh, uh, stop by your local bookshop or online. It's, it's, it's up on all the big sites. Um, the, uh, if my website is uh, easy to remember, if you can remember how to spell it, it's drjeffspeece.com. Uh, and there are links to how to buy the book. There's descriptions about the book. That's where my blog is. You can read other stuff that I've written and see if you like me or not. Um, sign up and follow for a while. Unsubscribe. But anyway, drjeffspeace.com, and the contact link gets goes directly to my inbox. So. And the name of your book is not Relax. It's only Life and Death. It is. <laughs> Dying with care. Dying with ease. Dying, Dying with, with ease. ease. I was just testing you. Yeah, I was just testing you. <laughs> and remember, it's Dying only really a matter it's only a matter of life and death once. So relax. <laughs> That's right. Okay, we, we totally messed that up, but very good. Thank you for the, coming on the show. We thoroughly enjoyed it. Um I'm just watching all of the people who've been watching this on uh, Facebook Live, just scrolling down, scrolling down, scrolling down. Maybe the subject of death really intrigues oh, people, yeah. you know. Yes. We appreciate you coming on the show. And for everybody else, thank you. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Sometimes it feels like the sun will never rise, like the birds will never sing. 